You are live with The App Show. I'm your host, Mike Agarbo. I've got my guest host, Carmi Levy, with me today, and we have a great program. We will be talking about facial recognition. A lot of law enforcement agencies around the world are using a system from a company called Clearview AI. We have covered this a number of times and kind of all the uh, the good and bad of uh, of that technology. Well, you know, facial recognition isn't perfect. We're going to be talking about a story where someone was misidentified by police and spent a week in jail. It is kind of freaking me out. We'll also be uh, chatting with the uh, folks over at Amazon about quantum networking, super high-speed networking to connect quantum computers. You won't even be able to fathom the technology and the speed necessary to transfer that information, but we're going to try to explain it in uh, plain English. And Tesla. Apparently, it's uh, been leaked out that uh, some Tesla employees have been sharing customer images from their own cars with each other. Kind of uh, a huge invasion of privacy. Thanks again for coming on the show, Carmi. Really great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, this first story, uh, as we always cover news stories here in uh, the top of the hour, uh, and it concerns AI again. Uh, A data scientist has cloned his best friend's group chat using AI. So this guy, his name is Izzy Miller, downloaded half a million messages from his seven-year group chat and then trained an AI language model to replicate his friends, learning details about their lives and imitating the way they speak. This is an article up on The Verge if uh, you know listeners want to get a, a bit more information. Um, but that is kind of freaky. Like, who needs <laughs> friends now when you can have AI? Basically, yeah, I'm, copy your friends. I'm thinking- I'm thinking that they're not his friends anymore. I think, you know, <laughs> if, if, my, if if I'd been in a in a group chat, and I'm you know, and I think I'm not alone. All of us, we're all we all have different group chats with all sorts of different people, different overlapping networks of friends and colleagues and family members and mixtures of all of them. And can you imagine someone just sort of reaching into the archives and grabbing them, and then and literally, and literally what what Izzy Miller did was he. He throwed the view that's the same technology that powers Bing and, and ChatGPT, which is essentially the new language, large language model, Chat uh, GPT four. Um, and he sort of he he used that to train uh, on all of his friends' conversations. And so essentially, what it does is it makes it analyzes the, the the data, it makes connections within it, and then it teaches itself to essentially respond like they would. Um, so no need for human friends because now you have digital friends. And you know, I think it's. It's an interesting case study or use case of what the technology can do. And we're kind of at that stage now. We're just a few months removed from when ChatGPT first became available to the public. And so lots of people, I would expect data scientists like Mr. Miller to to be kind of rolling up their sleeves and playing with this stuff and seeing what it can do and what it can't do and what the limitations are. Uh, And so I think this is part of that process, but uh, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And I think really, I think we've got to look at cases like this, like did the friends know that he was building this on, on their behalf? Did he know that information that they had shared supposedly among friends in private for over a total of seven years that it would be used in this very public way. Um, and that kind of raises a specter for you and me that things that we've done under the guise of privacy over the past number of years could suddenly be grabbed, thrown into a large language model used to build some kind of new AI platform. Um, and then we've lost control of that original content, that original 
participation. Uh, and and we never consented to it in the first place if someone else, if my now former friend Izzy Miller did that. So I think there are a lot of ethical um, and frankly legal questions that you know, are going to be asked and hopefully answered over the next number of years. And this is just one of the the, the, the ones that we're seeing kind of pop up at this early stage. But we owe it to ourselves to open our eyes, ask those questions, have those conversations. Otherwise, we could find ourselves way behind the Izzy Millers of the world. They're racing ahead, taking advantage of all these new technologies, perhaps compromising you and me in ways that we couldn't have even imagined just a few months ago. I'm, you know, I'm reading this article about this and it, it's freaking me out because he actually created like, you know, little personas for all his different friends uh, from that chat group uh, and made mm. kind of a clone of Apple's iMessage user interface. And he said it felt so real, like interacting with the, the fake AI friends. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, and I mean, there's a certain, you know, wow, this is really cool kind of aspect to it. And, and certainly I think it's neat. I think as a way of exploring the potential of artificial intelligence, we should be doing this. Like we've been given this incredibly powerful tool set and we owe it to ourselves to really play with it and, and you know wrestle it to the ground, so to speak, and see what it can do. Um, but I think you know we need to sort of recognize that it can be used for good or it can be used for not so good. And you know the the problem with this particular application is I already see signs of abuse or potential abuse, um, and left unchecked, you know, if there aren't uh, restrictions on their use or if there isn't a framework for acceptable use. Uh, then we've got a problem because it means that that anyone can kind of race ahead, do what they want, compromise the rights, the integrity, the ethics, the legal, the legalities of others, um, and essentially get away with it because there's no framework to hold people accountable. Um, and I think we need to make sure that those guardrails are in place before AI, you know, gets away from us. Well, um, it looks like on that note, it looks like China, um, and this is on the heels of uh, one of the big. Uh, uh, internet companies over there, Alibaba, they've uh, announced their own uh, chat GPT kind of clone. Uh, the Chinese government has uh, basically um, uh, unveiled uh, a new uh, draft uh, publication of rules on how generative uh, artificial intelligence services should be managed. Yeah, I have to admit, when I saw this story break earlier this week, I kind of laughed a little bit because it's it's somewhat rich coming from a government that is you know has is renowned for creating uh the very notorious great firewall of china that has been using technology on a mass scale for years to spy on their citizens to essentially dictate the trajectory of their life what you do online in china everything is tracked uh, and all of that tracking is used to determine where you live what job you get what school you go you you get into and even whether you're allowed on an airplane or not. So, you know, the fact that China is now saying, whoa, 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 we need better controls on artificial intelligence is kind of laughable because China, frankly, is using artificial intelligence to create the greatest mass surveillance network in the history of humankind. Uh, and essentially what they want is, I think what they want is to control the population so that they can have almost exclusive access to this technology to maintain their grip on Chinese society in the digital space. So um, I don't really trust uh, what's coming from the Chinese government, but the fact that they are taking the leadership position in it, I think sends a message to the rest of us that governments, whether they're in a democratic country or not, uh, really do need to take this seriously and really do need to kind of lead with it. 
it is somewhat rich for the Chinese government to be, you know, claiming this. And certainly I will take anything they say and do with a very large grain of salt. But uh, I think this is an important moment and a cue or an inspiration to governments everywhere, regardless of politics, um, that they need to start taking this seriously, that, you know, we in Canada and governments everywhere else need to have AI centric policies, need to have rules and regulations, proper legislation and laws in place. Um, you know, proper guardrails to you know minimize the potential for abuse and to minimize the damage in case abuse does occur, uh, and also to ensure accountability of everyone involved. The risk here is that in the absence of those kinds of frameworks and and laws, is that you know companies with a capitalist agenda, which let's face it, they all do, uh, will simply pursue profit, knowing full well that there is no accountability, that there are no consequences, and will essentially see a repeat on an even larger, more terrifying scale of what happened when social media became a thing, um, where companies like Facebook, we saw them behave in ways that were counter to uh, the the best, uh, you know, sort of, you know, the the, the be- counter to best practices and counter to you know what is right for society. Um, and look where we ended up. So um, I think we should learn our lessons from history and really start applying those forward to artificial intelligence before it bites us even harder than Cambridge Analytica ever did. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, we've got so much more to talk about here on the App Show. We'll uh, be chatting about uh, facial recognition, finger in the wrong man, quantum networking with Amazon, and uh, Tesla employees sharing private customer images that uh, were taken in their own cars. Back after this. You are back with the program. I've got Carmi Levy with me today. We're going to talk facial recognition, and it's everywhere now. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of people use it on their iPhones. You can un- unlock your phone with your face, and I know uh, a number of Android phones allow that as well. All these security cameras that are out in the wild, uh, in public spaces, and even the ones that you might have in your home can recognize humans. Uh, they can recognize faces. A lot of law enforcement are using facial recognition software uh, to, uh, I guess, find suspects. But it, it's not always perfect, is it, Carmi? No, it isn't. And, you know, we've seen this uh, clearly uh, on a number of occasions in recent years that uh, facial recognition uh, precision, accuracy drops off significantly when you introduce it into communities of color. So, you know, the BIPOC community, it has a, a very high failure rate, a high false positive rate as compared to individuals with white skin. Um, And that's largely because the systems uh, have been trained using databases of largely non-diverse individuals. And so if you haven't trained your facial recognition platform on a a diverse population, well, guess what? You're going to get lousy results when it encounters diverse people in the real world. And that's exactly what's happening here is members of the BIPOC community, people of color, uh, you know, essentially people with brown skin um, are, are much more likely to be fingered, false positive, identified by facial recognition systems, pulled over, arrested, thrown in jail saying, you know, what your facial recognition has identified you as a suspect, uh, even if they don't even know what they're talking about. And in many cases, Law enforcement is not even telling the individual that it was facial recognition that fingered them in the first place. Uh, and uh, as a result, they have to spend, you know, fire a lawyer, figure it out, spend thousands of dollars, lose days, if not weeks or months of work um, and and stand accused and have to prove uh, that they're innocent when, in fact, they had nothing to do with the original crime. It's absolutely terrifying. This is almost like the dystopian future that we feared uh, when facial recognition became a thing. Uh, and now it seems to be coming true. 
Well, you're referencing a New York Times story about uh, a gentleman uh, down there uh, in the U.S., uh, Randall Reed, mm-hmm. who was uh, driving his Jeep to his mom's place uh, outside of Atlanta when he was pulled over. He, uh, unfortunately for him, didn't have his driver's license with him. And um, the police basically, I guess, used facial recognition and pulled him out of his, uh, his car and handcuffed him, basically saying uh, there were two warrants out for his arrest. Which, mm-hmm. which they, you know, at the end of, you know, going through thousands of dollars and, and God knows what, uh, they were wrong. Yeah, and what's, what's terrifying about this is the crimes were committed in New, Louisiana, just outside New Orleans. And he had never been to, to Louisiana, <laughs> let alone New Orleans. And he told them that. He goes, I've never been there and I have nothing to do with this. And, uh, but they didn't care. They, they went back to the original uh, warrant and the warrant said, okay, the facial recognition has, you know, has you pegged. It says it's you, even though the individual on the security tape uh, that was used as the basis for drawing that connection to him was significantly heavier than he was. It was obvious just looking at it that he wasn't the guy but it took, he was in jail for a week. So he lost a week's worth of work. His parents had to hire lawyers, thousands of dollars uh, in costs. Lord knows how upsetting this was to the entire family, um, all because facial recognition said it was it was him when in fact it wasn't. And this is happening over and over again um, because law enforcement, rather than simply using it as one tool in a toolkit, in other words, it's one lead among many um, and it has to be backed up and verified and validated by other technologies and tools and processes. Uh, in many cases, that's the only thing connecting an individual to a crime. And even if it is somewhat tenuous, they're going ahead and making the arrest anyway, which from a civil liberties perspective is uh, absolutely terrifying. And and, and especially, uh, you know, those in the BIPOC community, they are at particular risk for this because of uh, the limitations of the technology, because of the way the technology has been trained. What I find interesting is that the company that makes the technology that was used here, it's called Clearview AI, um, he has come out and he told the New York Times that this arrest should never have been happening. He said even one arrest like this is too many, yet it keeps happening again and again and again. And now I, I would say that Times too if I were him. Future. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus. exactly. And, yeah. Uh, and 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 yet, you know what, like this is a company that uh, Clearview AI uh, has been uh, fairly controversial because a lot of police, uh, you know, a lot of law enforcement, they've been using it without really being upfront about it, not being transparent about that. The fact that they're using the technology, um, I know the RCMP got into trouble because a number of their officers were just using it without warrant, without a permission, just kind of going in. And I think you and I need to really think about our exposure and all of our listeners need to think about our exposure because how does this system work? It goes out onto the internet and it finds pictures of us. So if we posted something to Facebook or LinkedIn or to a blog or a website or whatever, it's going to grab that, throw it into the database. And now we are we are potentially targetable by this. And so we really have to think about, are we leaving too many of these digital breadcrumbs out there for systems like Clearview AI and other AI powered facial recognition systems uh, to 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 target us. Do we really want to be that exposed? I think we've really got to think about digital footprint now, especially as tools like this become far more pervasive out there. It, it's it's hard though, Carmi, because we want a safe society as well, right? And yeah. we, we want to give police and law enforcement the tools they need to catch criminals. And it, this is mm-hmm. a powerful tool. Do you know what I mean? Like if you can scan a picture uh, from some uh, video footage of someone that's committing a crime and then run it through this database and track this person down within seconds, that is amazing. So on mm-hmm. one hand, it's 
I mean, why wouldn't we want to help the police? But do right. the do the uh, the cons outweigh the the pros of this? Which, to your yeah. point, they might. I, and that's that's where I feel torn because it is so incredibly powerful. It can bring criminals to justice who, in the past, would not have been brought to justice. Um, and so, you know, if you're in law enforcement, you're looking at this, going, "Wow, this thing is a panacea. It's an absolute magic bullet. It's going to make our lives so much easier." But precisely because it's so powerful, um, the potential for abuse is also there. So I don't think you know, throwing it back into Pandora's box is really the answer here. It's out there. It's being used. We're we're not going back. However, ensuring that we have the right protections around the technology to ensure that due diligence is followed, that false positives are not, you know, that there are other checks and balances to uh, prevent a false positive uh, within the facial recognition system from leading to a wrongful arrest, uh, from looking at cases like this, this gentleman's in Atlanta and saying, what went wrong? How do we update the process so that it doesn't occur again. I think that's what we need to do. We really need to have what I like to call guardrails or protections around it um, to mitigate the potential for these kinds of abuses. And I think if we do that, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can put the right tools in the hands of law enforcement, which I think we all agree is absolutely crucial uh, to a safe and secure society. But at the same time, we minimize the potential for this kind of abuse to occur. Uh, and we also reassure members of our diverse communities that they are not being unfairly targeted by a technology that is clearly in its early stages and needs to grow up a little bit and learn a little and, and be better uh, at deployment in diverse communities. Well, uh, we have to figure this out. And I think government has to figure this out. And as citizens, we have to come to some agreement as to like what the right way forward is because, um, you know, Law enforcement definitely needs these tools, but at the same time, we do have to respect human rights and our overall privacy. And, you know, we're going to be continuing this conversation for months, if not years uh, to come. We're going to have to take a break here, but when we come back, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here. We're going to talk something really far out now. Uh, we're all into technology and computing. Quantum computing is the next level. There's also quantum networks. And AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, is deep into this research and uh, production. We've got a, a really fascinating guest with us today. Her name is uh, Antia Lamas Linares. She's the head of uh, the Amazon Web Services Center for Quantum Networking. Thanks for uh, coming on the program. Thanks for having me. So just let's kind of try to uh, get a, a primer here for the listeners. Why is quantum computing important for uh, the advancement of technology? So quantum computing uh, is important, or we think it's important, because it allows for ways of of models of computation that are just not possible with, with classical computers. So quantum physics is fundamentally different than classical physics, and it turns out that this has an impact on how computers work. And specifically, it turns out that there are certain classes of problems that quantum computers can solve very efficiently. And those are very important problems. And that's why there are a bunch of companies, including AWS, that are investing in quantum computing. Do you have some examples of what that quantum computing would be good for? Yeah, so, well, it's a, it's a, obviously it's a very new field or a relatively new field, and we don't quite understand all the applications, but there are definitely applications such as security. For example, quantum computers are known to be able to decrypt uh, information that is currently in transit 
very efficiently. So a lot of our information is is secure because it requires solving a very complex problem that computers would take millions or hundreds of millions of years to to solve classical computers. But it turns out that if we had a fully fledged quantum computer, we could we could do this in a very short time, and that would that would allow us to decrypt current communication. So that that is an example. But in terms of positive applications, there there is expectations that quantum computers will be very useful, for example, for the uh, simulation of, of quantum systems. So, you know, when, when people talk about drug discovery and optimization of chemical processes in, in industry, for example, a lot of what they do is a simulation of the quantum properties of matter. And quantum computers are expected to be very very good for these kinds of things. So you folks are working on quantum networking, uh, connecting uh, computers, quantum computers. Uh, you have a uh, collaboration going right now with a company called Element 6. Uh, they're part of the De Beers group, uh, the, the folks that mine diamonds. And from what I understand, uh, you guys are developing new synthetic diamond materials uh, for quantum networking. So why are diamonds important for what you're doing with quantum networking? So when we when we talk about developing quantum networking technologies, we one element that we need, we need a lot of things, but one element that we need is the ability to store the state of a photon that is transferring quantum information uh, to store it for a little while so that we can perform operations on it. Um, and for that, we we, there, there are a few candidate, uh, candidates for this, but one of the top ones is what we call defects in diamonds. So these are essentially uh, little alterations or defects of the, of the crystal structure of diamond that behave like a little artificial atom. And that artificial atom is able to capture a, a photon, a, a qubit of light, and then re-emit it after a little while. So that acts as a quantum memory. And that's a component of, of quantum networks. So when you say it, it captures that that photon for a little while, like what is a little while? That's, you know, that is one of the properties that we always try to, to improve. So right now it might be on the order of uh, tens of microseconds, milliseconds. We think we can get up to seconds, which sounds like a very short time, but one needs to compare these times with the speed of light. So. Are we going? Is that uh, is that state? Is that memory going to be long enough that we are able to um, to do the operation that we need to do, and to maybe wait for a different part of the network to catch up? Because there's a lot of synchronization going on in these networks. So those are the relevant time scales. Already, the the times that we that are achievable are sufficient to uh, for us to do interesting things with with quantum networks. So why synthetic? Like, um, why not real diamonds? Is it a cost thing or you need to be able to specifically make the diamond have these flawed properties? That's, that's a very good question. So uh, these defects were originally found in, in natural diamonds. So, you know, there's diamonds that are, you know, fully clear, but they're diamonds that have colors in them. And they have colors because they have this defect. So people started studying them and they realized they had these very interesting properties. And that's fine for in terms of science exploration. But when you want to engineer a device based on, on such a thing, you can't really just 
wait for the serendipity of finding exactly the right color in exactly the right location. You want to create these defects and then uh, do nanofabrication around them so that you can put them in a device because it's not just the it's not just the defect itself but also a a device that we fabricate around it much like we do with with semiconductor processing for for conventional computers for conventional processors so when you create these these diamonds and what kind of device is it going into so we we Typically what we do is we pattern the diamond uh, around the, the defect uh, so that we enhance the probability that that the photon that is coming with the quantum information will get absorbed. Uh, we might also uh, have uh, uh, other properties like spin, spin memories, longer term memories that are placed around it so that we can really do complicated processing of the information that is stored in there. Uh, so there, it, it gets quite complicated in terms of the, the types of devices that get get fabricated around them. And so why do we want quantum networks? Uh, is it to connect quantum computers? So there, there are a few things. We want them, the nice thing is that we want them for several reasons. So in the short term, they they serve to enhance security of communications over conventional networks. Uh, so as AWS, you know, we're always interested in security technologies, and that's one aspect that we're exploring. Uh, that's in the relatively short term. Uh, in the longer term, we want quantum networks to connect quantum computers together, much like we connect classical computers to each other to form clusters or supercomputers. One can do similar things with with quantum computers. Now that is a that is a pretty long timeline to do to do that. You know, that's where the roadmap, technical roadmap of quantum networks sort of converges with with quantum computing. But ultimately that is that is the goal. And how far away are we then from like functioning quantum networks? Do you feel? So for the for the early applications, for the early applications there are already uh, test deployments out there. And this would be things like for the security applications that I was mentioning, it's called quantum key distribution. There are there are networks out there that demonstrate this in Europe, the, in Asia, and some in the US as well. So that is already even at the level of commercial availability. For these more advanced applications like uh, a fully functional uh, quantum memory inside a, a quantum network, a quantum repeater, that will be a few years still, but we're talking years, not not decades. We've been uh, chatting with uh, Antia Lamas uh, Linares. She's the head of uh, Amazon Web Services Center for Quantum Networking. I think I understood uh, roughly about twenty percent of that, but it's fascinating. Uh, you know the direction we're going in with quantum computing and the the networking aspect uh, as well. I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having us. We're very excited about this collaboration, so we're. We're very happy to talk about it. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with the App Show. Mike Agarbo here. We've got Carmi Levy with me today. Going to talk uh, Tesla now. Uh, Tesla, one of the, uh, I guess, most popular electric car manufacturers in the world uh, right now. I have one myself. Uh, I, I do enjoy, enjoy driving it. I do enjoy not paying for gas. 
anymore. It uh, has saved me literally hundreds of dollars uh, a month. Uh, and these cars have some amazing technology uh, in them. Very kind of uh, minimalist uh, interiors. They've got kind of a giant screen, almost looks like a giant iPad screen, but it controls uh, everything. And throughout the car, especially on the outside, there are cameras. And these cameras uh, are used for the auto steer, for the full self-driving uh, option, if you got a spare $15,000 uh, lying around. But there's also a camera on the inside of the cabin uh, as well. And uh, I guess that's designed to monitor the driver to make sure that he's paying attention to the road during uh, the full self-driving or the auto steering uh, mode. But now we're uh, seeing this report, Carmi, that some Tesla workers have shared sensitive, sensitive images recorded by customer cars. Yeah, we know that you know all of the cameras, both inward and outward facing, Tesla uh, collects data from them, imagery from them, and it uses it to train its systems. Uh, and, and ostensibly, that's supposed to be the process, right? So that it learns um, how to drive out in the real world. It learns how to recognize certain things, certain scenarios, um, and it can train the artificial intelligence software, the algorithms that uh, teach the car how to drive properly uh, in autonomous mode. So, you know, like there's a reason for the company to be soaking up massive amounts of data, imagery based data from its vehicles. Um, but now we're finding that between 2019 and 2022, um, they weren't just doing that. And so they were also collecting that information and, and Tesla employees on their internal messaging systems. So think uh, Slack or Microsoft Teams. Uh, they were uh, taking the, uh, photos and videos and other imagery from the cars and they were sharing them amongst each other. And it was like a big joke. They were laughing about it. In some cases, they would, you know, there was a, a picture of a naked guy walking through his garage and they would put, you know, graphics on it and oh. a frame around it. And I hope that wasn't I hope, I hope that wasn't me. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. But the frightening thing here, Mike, is it could have been it could have been anyone who had uh, a Tesla vehicle equipped with that hardware within those three years. Um, and and what's worse is you don't even have to have owned a Tesla because my, you know, my neighbor who has a Tesla, he parks it right near my house and that could be looking at my house too. So how do I know that my imagery of you know me just going about my life wasn't included in that? So it goes way beyond just the Tesla ownership community. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I think it, it, again, sort of just like our conversation about, you know, Western digital dropping the ball with its MyCloud devices and service is that, you know, Tesla is telling us sign up for this, pay for it, uh, you know, and trust us that we will keep everything private, that we will keep it secure. And then we find their employees are sharing it, you know, willy nilly internally and some of that imagery is now leaking out uh, and people are finding that it's basically like a frat party in there, uh, uh, courtesy of us. And, you know, we're all the, you know, we're all on display whether, whether we like it or not. We never consented to this. Um, and I think it really does sort of raise the, as, as we do business with companies that are collecting ever more uh, uh, rich data sets from us. I think the standard of care uh, needs to be significantly higher and you certainly can't afford to drop the ball in this way. Um, and I think that should be a warning, not just to Tesla, but to any other company uh, with which we have a digital relationship that kind of thing just doesn't fly. Uh, and if it does, guess what? Uh, I know a lot of people now based on this one story alone, they're just looking, I've had these conversations this week. I'm never buying a Tesla again, because if this is the way they behave, I'll buy another electric vehicle one where the employees respect my data a little bit more. Sure. 
like how do you know they're going to respect it more uh, until they exactly. get caught right well, well if i'm if i'm a you know a ford or a general motors i my pr teams would probably be looking at this and coming up with marketing messages that explain exactly why they can be trusted and tesla cannot be uh it's a dirty business out there and it's highly competitive and i think tesla has now opened the door uh, for others to take advantage of and bore in on what is clearly a very significant internal vulnerability, namely the maturity and level of training of their employees. Yeah, I, I just think of my Tesla, and one of the features is the sentry mode, which mm-hmm. basically is a, a security mode. If anyone gets near the car, you know, touches the car, bangs into the car, the cameras start capturing that mm-hmm. video. And I, I have it stored onto a... Um, a thumb drive in in my vehicle uh, but you know i can also log in uh, through the tesla app and i can actually see live video happening uh, as, mm-hmm. as well so you know this story really upsets me that they are so careless with my privacy do you know what i mean like this this car is like a a driving camera <laughs> yeah <laughs> like a, I, 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 and I remember when Sentry, when Sentry Mode was first introduced, when they started adding cameras to their vehicles, and I thought, what a wonderful thing. Like, how often would I love to have known when somebody, you know, bumped into my car at the parking lot and left without leaving a note, leaving me with the bill? Uh, would I have loved to have been able to identify this individual, share that information with my insurance company and let them work it out? That would have been awesome. So, like, these are technologies that can significantly improve our lives, yet for whatever reason, the companies that are deploying them are also kind of not controlling them internally, and they're letting the bad outweigh the good. Uh, and that's what bothers me, but every technology has a dark side, and I get it, but it's one thing if you know, hackers or other malevolent actors from the outside try to hack into a Tesla or do something with the data, but it's another when it's the company itself. Um, it's like going to the bank and realizing that they're laughing at you behind your back. I don't expect that from my bank. I certainly don't expect it from the company that I buy my car from, no matter how magical their technology is. And so I don't want to take away from what is so amazing about putting cameras on a car, introducing something called sentry mode, making it so insanely easy for you to, you know, get this imagery, share it remotely, um, access it when you need it, uh, you know, prevent being hit and run and all those other great things. Uh, But then we have these little sort of stories that sort of reinforce that, Sometimes when you get really badly trained, nasty humans involved, uh, we have some pretty shady outcomes as well. And I think the industry needs to deal with that. But then there's Elon Musk. This is his company, right? And <laughs> yeah. the guy's like gone down the, the crazy train lately. Do you know what I mean? Like just some That's of the... To say. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm concerned. I really am. Like what kind of culture is he breeding at this company that has no respect for their customers' privacies? privacy and then he's always saying crazy stuff as well like Mm -hmm. does he care yeah what's he gonna say i i don't think he does in fact i think he probably sees this as as a good thing because it gets people talking about teslas and it maybe in his mind warped as it may be he probably thinks oh now people will know that we have cameras on our cars and now they're more familiar with sentry mode than they would have been otherwise and we know that he doesn't have a media relations team he famously disbanded them uh, we know that when you try to get access them or if you submit a media inquiry to any of his companies now, you get a message back with the poop emoji on it. It, it goes to um, the Twitter staff. Oh, he fired yeah, He fired them all. <laughs> exactly. So so, so I, I agree. Uh, and, and up until now, Tesla seems to have been somewhat 
insulated from what was happening at Twitter. But um, the fact that this is happening within Tesla, which of course has rather famously over the years had some very difficult labor relations hiccups uh, because of Mr. Musk's management style. Um, I, I, I honestly, I, I hope this isn't the beginning of a similar a slide like we're seeing at Twitter at Tesla. Um, and I'm hoping that you know the company that saner heads will prevail. And while Mr. Musk is distracted by his Twitter adventure, that you know hopefully the adults in the room at Tesla will deal with this as they should and ensure that something like this never happens again. Uh, it's not acceptable for any company, let alone one that you know really has been leading the charge toward electrifying our automotive fleet. I expect better from them, no matter who owns them. It's going to be interesting in the next five years, Carmi. Uh, just as more competition enters the space with electric vehicles, we, we see it, right? Like Volkswagen and, um, you know, the Fords and GMs are really kind of ramping up, uh, you know, the amount of models. They're all electrifying. And at a certain point, you know, the board at Tesla and shareholders, like how long can he keep being stupid? Yeah, uh, I think that window is closing very rapidly. Competition does wonderful things to your behavior. Um, and you either rise to the occasion um, and you grow up and you start flying straight uh, or you get steamrolled by the, inc the incumbents. And Tesla's done a wonderful job carving out um, a, a leadership position in a market that up until it arrived had been fighting EVs tooth and nail. Um, you know, the, ma the major manufacturers were happy to continue selling us gas burning cars. Uh, and uh, Tesla showed that, you know, a, a, an electric vehicle doesn't have to be, um, you know, nerdy. Uh, it, it can have long range. It can have incredible performance. It can be reliable. All those great things. Um, and now that the, the rest of the industry has finally woken up, largely thanks to Tesla's prodding, uh, you know, Tesla is going to have to change its ways. And a lot of the inner tumultuous labor relations problems, and I think this is yet another example of them, uh, that this company has had, um, uh, you know, I, I think they need to figure out how to fix them once and for all, because if they don't, uh, at some point, Tesla will not lead the market uh, that it literally created. Uh, and at some point, the incumbent players like Volkswagen, like General Motors, uh, will uh, essentially eat their lunch. Um, and if they do, it'll be deserved because Tesla will have dropped the ball. I hope that's not the case. I hope Tesla has a place to play in the automotive market going forward. It is a great instigator of change. Um, but, you know, if if this is a one-time thing, fine, you know, fix it and move on. If this is not a one-time thing, Tesla will deserve all the failure that comes its way because of it. Only time will tell. That's uh, all the time we have left for the show. I want to thank Carmi Levy for joining us. Don't forget to listen to Get Connected, our sister show. Go to our website, getconnectedmedia.com. See you next time.